This is The Guardian. The reign of Nicola Sturgeon is finally over and Humza Yusuf is the Scottish First Minister. But is independence now dead and buried? People of Scotland need independence now more than ever before and we will be the generation that delivers independence for Scotland. With the SNP divided and its support falling, what's next for Scotland's governing party? Meanwhile, the Conservatives have announced a clampdown on antisocial behaviour and petty crime. The worst crimes flourish when lower-level crime is tolerated. Let me be clear, Mr Speaker, there is no such thing as petty crime. They're definitely tough on crime, but what about the causes? I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Week in the UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are The Guardian's Gabby Hinsliff and the former Downing Street Chief of Staff and current Conservative peer Gavin Barwell. We're going to be talking about the SNP and who their new leader and uh, the new First Minister of Scotland is. And then later we'll talk about crime as the Conservatives and the Labour Party set out their plans in that particular area of policy. Before we talk to Gabby and Gavin, I'm going to bring in Libby Brooks, The Guardian's Scotland correspondent. Libby, you're at one of those strange journalistic moments when you're suddenly at the end of a very long, arduous story. Are you okay? <laughs> I think I think I've got just about enough adrenaline left for uh, speaking to you, and then I'm going to need a long lie down. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to recess. Okay, I'm honoured to be your last uh, encounter then before you have your long lie down. <laughs> Humza Yusuf, as we and everybody listening probably knows, has been elected as the new leader of the Scottish National Party and thereby become... First Minister of Scotland, in what at times felt like watching a pretty bruising family argument, the successor to Nicola Sturgeon becomes the first person of colour to lead Scotland at a time when support for independence seems to be dropping off somewhat and any route towards it feels increasingly further away. Here's what Humza Yusuf said on Monday this week when he was announced as the party's new leader. Where there are divisions to heal, we must do so quickly because we have a job to do. As a party, we are at our strongest when we are united. And what unites us is our shared goal of delivering independence for our nation. To those in Scotland who don't yet quite share that passion that I do for independence, I will aim to earn your trust by continuing to ensure we govern well and earn your respect as First Minister by focusing on the priorities that matter to all of us. Libby, let's talk first of all about what we know about Humza Yusuf. I have a bit of form here. In 2012, um, I wrote a profile of Humza Yusuf. I interviewed him at quite great length in Glasgow. Um, he struck me as quite a sort of assured, articulate presence. He was 27 then. I said he was tipped for great things. Among the things he said to me was this. He said, um, generally, there's a consensus in the SNP that we're comfortable with being a left of centre social democratic party. So the left of Labour, the current Labour party, sure, that's where he was coming from. Quite prophetic words in entirely the wrong way, rather, in the sense that this leadership contest has proved perhaps that there isn't a consensus in the party about being left of centre in various ways. What do you make of Humza Yusuf as a person and a political operator in terms of what he stands for? 
Well, it's it's interesting, isn't it? You you were speaking to him about um, the Labour Party, about about New Labour, and obviously, you know, maybe maybe he spoke to you too about the fact that he came to political consciousness in the aftermath of of nine eleven. He's he's sort of spoken spoken since about the fact that he was at this private school called Hutchison's Grammar in the south side of, of Glasgow and, and suddenly found that all of his white pals who he was used to playing football with were interrogating him about why Muslims didn't like America. And then sort of after that got involved in sort of anti anti Iraq war protests and and has described sort of joining the SNP as as this penny drop moment. Fast forwarding to the the leadership contest that that we've just had, that did end up sort of feeling really like a, an existential battle for for the soul of the party. Whether it was the party of Nicola Sturgeon's progressive agenda, or whether it turned out that the membership were more drawn to Kate Forbes, who was uh, it turned out very. <laughs> Hamza Yusuf sort of very very close uh, second. That's the point though isn't it is that exactly that tension that you talk about has not been resolved has it because as we know once second preferences were counted the magic British number reared its head 5248 right which resolves nothing yeah, arguably. Absolutely absolutely and, let, and let's remind remind ourselves Kate, Kate Forbes she, she was also taking a sort of much more centre-right view on the economy, on, for example, wanting to sort of slow down the transition from North Sea oil and gas. Uh, she was saying that she didn't want to see any further income tax rises for, for the better off, which, you know, again, is sort of completely at odds with, with what Nicola Sturgeon's progressive taxation policies had been. The, the result was incredibly close run, and, and I don't think that tension has, has been resolved at all. Yeah, yeah, sure. And, and once um, or now that independence has sort of dwindled somewhat as an imminent prospect, that's the one thing that tied those two wings of the party together. But I wanted to ask you about one sort of unalloyed simple positive here, which is the fact that for all we talk about with good reason what a racist country Britain is, we now have a Prime Minister of Indian descent and a leader of Scotland and mayor of London born to Pakistani parents. So whatever we say about unresolved tensions and a somewhat underwhelming contest, this is a moment and a very big moment in that sense. That's true. Absolutely. And it was actually, there was a really powerful exchange in the Hollywood Chamber yesterday. I was watching Yusuf as as he was formally elected by, by MSPs to become the next first minister and he sort of talked about the fact that, you know, he wanted this to send a strong message to every single person out there who feels they don't belong. And across the chamber, you have the Scottish Labour leader, Anas Sarwar, who is the first ethnic minority leader of Scottish Labour. But also went to the same private school as he Hamza did. Yusuf. Yep, just a few years. Just a to few complicate years things slightly. Above them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sort of briefly, I mean, he was, he was sort of pretty, um, bruising in in setting out his his opposition to to Yusuf's policies and SNP tenure but you know briefly kind of laid down those hostilities and and said regardless of our politics we should take all take immense pride uh, that this country is to have its first minority ethnic first minister uh, whatever our political differences and there'll be many in the months ahead today's significance cannot be understated 
It is something our grandparents would never, ever have imagined. As you say, it is, it is a moment, but it is a moment also to be seen in the context of these other positions in the UK. And also, let's not forget that there is an ongoing public inquiry in Scotland at the moment into the death of a young black father, Sheku Bayo, in custody, uh, an inquiry into whether race was an element in, in his death. And so, uh, yeah, context is a okay. as always. Here's another bit of context, which doesn't get talked about very often in the sort of London-centred media. This is a point, really, I wanted to make going back to uh, the independence referendum of 2014. Um, it seemed to me at that point, and I spent a lot of time in Scotland around then, that the independence cause looked like it was the centre of a, of a real sort of burgeoning social movement. And what I thought was, after the referendum, because it turned out to be as close as it did, that a lot of those people would kind of crowd into the SNP. And the SNP had a chance then of becoming a more sort of vibrant grassroots kind of party, but that never happened. Someone said to me not that long ago that the SNP was run like a family business. It was very, very top-down. Nicola Sturgeon and her husband, the former chief executive of the party, were at the top. There was not a huge sense of sort of internal party democracy and so on. Um, the SNP ran Scotland a bit like that. It's quite a centralising party. And what that meant was that a lot of the p political energy around independence dwindled away pretty quickly. That really kicked in just as it became clearer and clearer that the SNP had been in power for as long as it has and that perhaps its record in Scotland isn't that great. And it's those two things together have left it very, very exposed, really. Mm. And that mm. and that's the situation that Humza Yusuf inherits, isn't it? Yeah. He's, he, because independence has receded, because it hasn't got that great energy behind it, questions are now being asked about its domestic record. And they're very, very difficult questions for the SNP to answer. Yeah, no, completely. And I think... I think what's interesting at the moment is that it's very clear to me that that Yusuf is is facing these sort of twin challenges. First, as as leader of the SNP, secondly, as as first minister, he has this hugely over overflowing intray uh, in terms of public services in in Scotland and and all of the sort of challenges that that we face. We could go through, you know. But also, so within the party itself, there is this, I think, this sort of real clamour for for reform. I think what the the campaign did was was really expose how frustrated a lot of SNP activists have been by that sort of top down organisation. It's, it's going to be a, a, a very fine balance at, at the same time as there these sort of incredibly pressing domestic concerns led by. Cost of living crisis. The difficult position that Humza Yusuf and the SNP are in already seems very, very vivid. I mean, you know, 24 hours, 36 hours after it was announced that he was going to be the leader in the sense that he's now putting together his cabinet and already there's a story there, right? Because Kate Forbes, who ran in very close with the leadership, um, was offered a demotion, I think I'm right in saying, um, and has, has resigned, right? So the representative of, of the non-Humza Yusuf progressive side of the party isn't is no longer present in the Scottish cabinet and that alone tells you that things are going to be probably pretty rocky right yeah absolutely um i mean it's yeah it's it's got m messy very quickly uh <laughs> after yusuf had sort of promised he was going to have this big tent leadership sort of moving away from nicola sturgeon's inner circle approach immediately offered kate forbes it's the department of Rural Affairs and Islands uh, as compared to Finance Secretary, which she was doing before she went on maternity leave. Hold on, that's a bad look in itself. 
You come back off maternity leave and you get offered a demotion. I mean, do you know what I mean? That's doubly bad. I, I believe we have we have laws about that. Um, and indeed, <laughs> but more pertinently, where is the representation, as you say, for the 48% who preferred Forbes to, to Yusuf in, in that leadership election that was only concluded two days ago? So a moment ago, I sort of made reference to the politics of social movements and activists and all that. What are SNP members and activists saying to you right now about the state of things? One one SNP MP sort of described it to me last week as you know Nicola Sturgeon's iron grip on on the party, and that with with her stepping down now, it is like the cork is out the bottle, and all of these simmering tensions and and divisions are sort of laid out for all to see. But I think as far as the wider yes movement is concerned, I would dispute that idea that that the energy has has completely dissipated. I mean, yes, of course, you know, in in the sense that there's there's not been anything to campaign for since 2014. But in time terms of that wider movement, I think they they have put their energies sort of Place them more locally, put them into sort of more community-based projects, and so that that is is still ongoing. Yeah, you know, I I completely accept that for, for what it's worth. I suppose my point was more about the fact that over time it became clear that the SNP hadn't opened itself up to the energy of the Yes movement, and that it re- it reverted to its own version of politics as usual, which I think is part of the reason why it's now in this weakened position. And I say all this without any sort of glee. Because um, in a somewhat lonely position among English political commentators, I was very supportive of independence, as you may recall. I do recall that, and, yes. And, and remain so. <laughs> um, so last question. As we've said, the SNP is very, very exposed, probably more exposed politically than it's been since 2007 when it first took power. There are all of these big issues facing it about the state of Scottish society, the state of Scotland's public services, policy questions like Nicola Sturgeon's moves on gender recognition. Over the next six months, what do you think Hamza Yusuf's going to do? I mean, does even he know? <laughs> well, I think I think the biggest challenge for him is to sort of come come out sort of beyond Nicola Sturgeon's shadow. In in that sense, that you know, when when she stepped up in twenty fourteen, she was already sort of incredibly well known and very popular with you know, SNP voters and independence voters having spearheaded that that campaign pre-referendum. Yusuf is sort of not remotely as well known and and where the sort of wider public are aware of him, it's around criticisms of his record as health secretary, or it's because of his unfortunate tendency to make public gaffes and so i think he really needs to sort of come up with a sort of immediate strategy for imprinting himself establishing himself in in voters minds as as a sort of more serious leader that's a big ask because he's unfortunately it's an unlucky position to be in he follows two SNP leaders and first ministers who were fantastically charismatic forces of nature really for better and worse mm. right but following Salmond and then Sturgeon, I felt this as I was watching the campaign from a distance, just thinking, God, 
none of these three people really are going to fill those boots no, try as they ab- might absolutely and i mean you know he he has said himself many times sturgeon's shoes are are sort of enormous ones to fill but i suppose it's it's also the case that the general public are you know in the ipsos pooling that came out just before the end of the the campaign found that you know a much lower number of people were listening to news about the SNP leadership than they were taking in news about you know the cost of living crisis and concerns about NHS waiting lists and so actually I think if he can align himself more with uh, with those priorities then he's uh, yeah perhaps in with a shout and to end on a positive for Humza Yusuf he's ha- if he happens mm-hmm. to be listening sometimes low expectations can be your friend you know what I mean <laughs> It's true. He he might indeed. He might indeed. And I'm going to look forward to your next uh, profile of him. That may come sooner than you think. Thank you for joining us, Libby. <laughs> and uh, I hope you enjoy your rest. Have a week off. I'm doing my best. Thanks very much, Libby. With me now are The Guardian's Gabby Hinsliff and the former Downing Street Chief of Staff and current Conservative peer, Gavin Barwell. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Uh, now, we've just been speaking to Libby Brooks, the Guardian Scotland correspondent, about Hamza Youssef, the newly appointed Scottish First Minister, and the very big challenges he faces. Uh, Gavin, have you met Hamza Youssef? I haven't, no. Uh, when I was in number 10, all of my dealings were with Nicola as First Minister, so I didn't get to meet any of her Okay. Of her Maybe I should ask you another question, which is then, in general, how were your dealings with the Scottish Government and the SNP in those years? Uh, if I was going to use one word, difficult. Okay. Um, now, I wonder, therefore, <laughs> compared to that level of difficulty, what Humza Yusuf's arrival um, in power and also this sort of juncture that Scottish politics seems to have reached, what both those things mean, really, for uh, Westminster's dealings um, with Scotland. Um, it's always seemed to me, to some extent, that the SNP and the Conservatives, certainly in recent years, have existed in a state of symbiosis, really, whereby if the SNP was very sort of vocal and noisy and confrontational, that was good news for the Conservatives. And if the Conservative Party in Westminster was similarly noisy and ideological and and confrontational, that was good uh, for the SNP. And that worked quite well. If you think of the sort of face-off between Nicola Sturgeon and Boris Johnson, right, that's how that worked, right? Rishi Sunak and Hamza Yusuf, it seems to me, almost certainly is a very, very different proposition. I think that relationship has been more useful over the uh, the long run to the SNP than it has to the Tories, definitely. To have a sort of Tory bogeyman government in Westminster that you could point to and say everything everything is their fault, it would be so much better if we broke away from them. You know, Scotland votes to the left of England anyway. To have a Tory government just makes that, you know, just makes the idea of government from Westminster feel even less legitimate. So it's been incredibly useful for the SNP. And you feel that... Um, you know, Nicola Sturgeon was very good at capitalising on that relationship, fantastic at, see, you know, taking a situation and seeing where it was to her advantage, terrific um, opportunist as a politician, and I mean that as a compliment. Uh, I kind of don't feel that, that Humza Yousaf is going to be quite as good at turning that relationship. Yeah, but, the, uh, but Gavin, the, cons- the Conservative Party has been, I mean, you can say it's extremely cynical and so on, but it, it quite successfully in 2015, for example... Uh, used a sort of latent English resentment about Scottish devolution and the SNP very much to its advantage, right? Yeah, we were going to have a, it was going to be a coalition of chaos. Yes, we were going to have complete that. chaos remember after that. 2015 if, if people didn't vote Conservative. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think there's some truth in that, although I, I think it was also partly about Ed Miliband. So it, they were trying to play both on that English attitude towards the SNP, but also a perception of what a government would look like if it 
yeah, how much influence would the SNP have over Miliband, essentially? So there was a kind of combination of things. I'm sure they'll try and replay that um, at the next election, but I think you're probably right. It may not be quite as potent if the threat from the SNP doesn't seem as potent at that point in time. Gavi mentioned the Labour Party only a couple of seconds ago. Gavi, what do you think their reaction is to Hamza Yusuf and the sort of juncture in Scottish politics that his arrival in power seems to represent? They're quite pleased, or they seem to be, whether justifiably or not. I would say ill-disguised glee, to be mm. honest, and not even that yeah. disguised. I mean, I think suddenly it looks it looks no longer looks ridiculous to think that Labour could a target, you know, maybe another twenty seats in Scotland next time round. You know, you can see not only the SNP vote crumbling now, but all sorts of splits and kind of internal warfare opening up inside the SNP as a result of the leadership election. So, you know, for Labour, absolutely, it's quids in. You know, lucky Kirstarmer that he happened to be the leader in place at the time that Nicholas Sturgeon moved on and all sorts of things began to seem possible that hadn't seemed possible before, I would say. You also have, you know, a road back to Parliament, I think, for a number of former Scottish Labour MPs who might well um, feel very tempted to stand again. Yeah, though, let's be careful here. The Labour Party remains a very depleted and weak force in Scotland compared to where it was at its height. And there's still a lot of mistrust among its old sort of core vote about how it ended up behaving in Scotland, which I always pick up when I go there. That's one thing. And secondly, it's probably very comfy to think that Nicola Sturgeon somehow takes the cause of independence with her. But that's not just rooted in individuals. A lot of that is sort of deep and structural and so on. So in that sense, politics may not be quite as transformed as some people would like to think, I guess. That may be true, but you also think, you know, the SNP has been in government. It's an incumbent governing yeah, force yeah. in Scotland. And, you know, the net results of that, you know, a lot of the SNP leadership election was devoted to talking about the net results of that. And, you know, the fact that the government's record on you know, healthcare and education isn't what it might be. You know, voters are looking for somewhere else. If you were going to protest vote against the SNP, where are you going to? You're not going to vote Tory, are you? So... I think all of those things come into play. As for independence and the desire for independence, I mean, I'd, I wouldn't necessarily say the desire for independence is going away. I think there may be, you know, maybe transforming into something else, maybe arguments about the timing, there may be arguments about the method, there's arguments about what's the difference with if you have a Labour government in Westminster that may be prepared to offer something else short of independence. You know, it just feels like the game's changed rather than that people have suddenly stopped wanting an independent Scotland. Yeah, I think... In all the excitement in Westminster that, you know, Sturgeon's departure means uh, the, the independence is sort of kicked into the long grass. I don't think we should get too excited for the reasons that Gabby said. There's a very strong age skew on support for independence. Um, and, I, and, and I don't think, uh, you know, the SNP in some ways is not a political party. It's a national movement. And, and it's a mistake to assume that a change in its leader long term is transformational i think i mean it, it, i think it, there is a short term effect yeah, certainly yeah, at maybe. the next election but. although its recent fall from grace to my mind is that it could have been a movement and it turned into a family business but that's another story <laughs> uh, we'll pause here for a minute and when we come back we will be talking about crime Welcome back. This week, the Conservatives have announced their plans to supposedly crack down on antisocial behaviour and petty crime. Plans including targeting begging and rough sleeping, making so-called laughing gas a Class C drug, and threatening people in social housing accused of antisocial behaviour with eviction. Those things have been all over the headlines. Let's hear a bit of Suella Braverman um, announcing those things in the House of Commons. 
The decent, hard-working, law-abiding majority are sick and tired of antisocial behaviour destroying their communities. Nobody should have to live in fear of their neighbours endure disorder and drug-taking in parks, see their streets disfigured by graffiti, fly-tipping and litter, or feel unsafe walking alone at night. Gangs of youths hanging around, getting up to no good, intimidating us all and degrading the places that we love. It's always seemed to me that sometimes people on the left tend to bat this stuff away as if it's sort of inherently opportunistic and trivial. We ought to acknowledge that some of these problems are very, very real, that antisocial behaviour ruins lives, and in, in many places these are, are very, very urgent problems. I suppose my take on all this is that over the last 13 years, a lot of Conservatives have done almost everything conceivable to encourage those things. You know, if you cut youth services, if you leave councils with so little money that they can't sort of maintain a basic level of upkeep of people's environment, then these are the problems that you get, let alone, in addition, if you cut police numbers by around 20,000 in the austerity period, this is where this ends up. So it does feel a bit like this is all a bit much and far too late and so on. Um, Gavin, how did you feel watching this stuff? I mean, you know, all parties when they're in government eventually reach this point, right, when they have a big crime and antisocial behaviour and yobs drive. It's very familiar. Yeah. I've lost count of the number of these kind of <laughs> launches I've seen from both parties during my political lifetime in government. But do you think to some extent the government is now sort of running against its own record? Because it's hard to deny that a lot of these problems even if they didn't originate in austerity, have been made a lot worse by it. I mean, when you hear Rishi Sunak, this was in the context of the laughing gas policy, talking about young people loitering around, my thought is, well, you're the party that cut that cut youth budgets here, there and everywhere, and that's, that's what ends up happening. I mean, to a degree, young people loiter around, that's what they do. I, used, I loitered around when I was I a was teenager. a champion loiterer. I was, <laughs> I agree, yeah. So, um, look, I mean, I think, I think sensible Conservatives would acknowledge that the austerity period did do damage you can't you can't there was some fat there were some things you could save without having a consequence but if you would reduce public spending in areas it's going to have implications i don't want to reopen the austerity argument today but i suppose what those conservatives would say well some of these decisions had to be made given the fiscal position but i don't think anyone should sort of say there were no consequences at all to the levels of reduction that we saw in public services and that to a degree that's why actually over time, some of them have begun to be reversed because, you know, if you take the NHS as an example, the May and Johnson and now the Sunak governments are increasing spending quite rapidly because it's very clear that more money is required. Do you think there was a dissonance here, Gabby, as well, in the sense that we're only, what, a week on from um, Louise Casey's report about the Metropolitan Police? And here was the government talking about sort of making the police even more powerful and giving them even more areas of responsibility and all that at a point when, certainly in London... Uh, the police's esteem is probably at an all-time low. It sort of rang a bit awkward and weird, I think, because of that. It did. I mean, we can get slightly too hung up, I think, on, you know, obviously the case review has been a huge thing. But if you're outside the Met area, you know, the sort of reform of the Met is not a huge issue if you live in Wigan. I think the two things that felt missing to me from that Conservative announcement were firstly any acknowledgement of, you know, half the things people are worried about is the clear up rate for crimes. It's you call a police, you know, you get burgled and the police don't come. They just want to give you a crime number. You know, you, you have to be practically dying before anyone answers your 999 call, that sort of thing. You know, just feeling that the police have fallen apart around. They're not there when you need them. And the other thing is, to some extent, the Conservatives are, you know, insulting voters' intelligence on this. 
this because it's all very much aimed at red wall voters. You know, that's what they think red wall voters want. They want people to be tough on crime. They want to address antisocial behaviour. It's not that the voters just want to hear somebody be tough on crime. Actually, people understand that it takes, you know, that you have to do both bits of it. And at the moment, government's only offering you half the picture. It's not talking at all about what policing needs and it's not talking at all about causes of crime. Do you think, Gavin, to some extent, that's all about a philosophical difference, that conservatives tend to see crime as a character issue, whereas on the centre-left or left of politics, it's more often put uh, as a manifestation of poverty and inequality. I mean, a that's public health crude. problem, right? That's crude, but you know, there is, there is a sort of enduring philosophical difference along those lines. That divide does exist. Um, and I think that the truth is that a bit of both is at play, right? It's not, there has to be some element of personal responsibility for the way people behave because not everybody that faces tough socioeconomic circumstances ends up committing crime. So you can't take away that personal responsibility. But it would also be a particularly obtuse conservative who said that there is no correlation at all and that these things don't matter. Yeah, but that, isn't that the thrust of what Suella Braverman and people like that say? I mean, that that idea that there is a bigger context for this is wholly lacking. She presents it as completely a sort of character issue. And therefore, I would argue, and it sounds like research among voters echoes this, it comes off sounding flimsy. Yeah, look, I think I think Blair's famous catchphrase is bang on the money, that actually what you want to do is try and tackle both of these problems, that you, you that where the voters are is they probably... Exactly as you say, if you hear someone saying it's all just about being tough on individuals, they will say, well, hang on, don't you need to do X, Y and Z? And if you hear people on the left sort of saying it's all just a public health problem, their reaction would be, no, we need to be tougher with the people doing this. The, the truth is voters, I think, want a balance between those two solutions. And successful governments to have offered a balance. That's the point. I mean, you know, it wasn't just, yeah, Blair did tough on crime, cause crime. David Cameron went through his hugger hoodie phase. You know, you know, he it's, did. it's he the did. successful parties in government are the ones that have leaned into the bit that voters aren't expecting from them. Yeah. But also, tell us something new. To go back to something Gavin said a moment ago, I mean, teams of miscreants in high-vis jackets clearing up their own mess. I mean, this is like hearing Shaking Stevens records. Do you know what I mean? I mean, this this just goes back decades. Uh, When New Labour ran out of ideas, I associate that kind of rhetoric with people like Hazel Blears and John Reid, which, again, isn't to underestimate the problem that they're faced with. It's just that... The, the, the solution that's proffered to it is just so hollow and third-hand and pathetic. So we, I think that the, the serious debate we need to have is we know that if you take people that have committed relatively, and I don't want to dismiss them, but relatively minor offences, and you put them in prison, all you do is you mix them in with more hardened criminals and, and you end up with worse behaviour. So we, we need an answer for what is the appropriate way to punish people that commit those lower-level offences that tries to stop them I think Oliver, Oliver Letwin that used to use this phrase about conveyor belts of crime. Are I remembering my naughty's reference correctly? Yeah, yeah. Last week, just as the last podcast um, went up, uh, Keir Starmer was setting out his vision on crime. He launched Labour's five missions. I, I've lost count of how many missions Keir Starmer is involved <laughs> at the moment. Uh, I think we must be at the double figures. But they included reducing violence against women, knife crime, and restoring public trust in the criminal justice system. Um, we can have a quick listen to him fleshing out his five mission statements as far as crime is concerned. The inequalities that still scar our society, class, race, gender, do find an expression in the very system that is supposed to protect us all without discrimination. Gabby, the main upshot of that in terms of its reporting was just a quote about what it's like having marijuana smoke coming through your window when you're putting your kids to bed. Um, 
But there was more to it than that, wasn't there? I, I thought, although, again, as with the Tory announcement, it was kind of weak on the context and the idea that crime has causes and so on, the frame framing for what Keir Starmer said was a bit more interesting in the sense that he was talking about access to the criminal justice system as a reflection of inequality. And also, he went very, very big on violence against women and sort of an institutional misogyny sort of argument there as well. So it was more substantial. You're nodding. He did. And also, I think, you know, I mean, it's, it's a sort of legal requirement that whenever Keir Starmer mentions crime, he has to say, I used to be director of public prosecutions. <laughs> did you know that? Have I ever mentioned that? But, you know, this was one of the few speeches where actually you felt like he was drawing on that experience usefully. You know, he was talking with insight about, you know, police clear up rates. Why is it so hard to get cases to the reporting stage, then to court, then to, you know, why are um, clear up rates and prosecution rates so low, particularly for rape and, and sexual offences? He was talking about his focus as DPP, which was genuinely on victims and the vulnerable, you know, and the lessons he'd drawn from that. So you felt that there was some kind of actual, you know, he was somehow in touch with reality, which was something missing from, from the Braverman aspect of things. I didn't quite see what he was promising that was going to achieve that. There is a really interesting difference between Starmer and Blair, you know, there's a similar kind of tone on this issue. But if you think back to those kind of new Labour 1997 targets, they were very specific and they were very achievable, which is not the case for the targets that he set either on the economy or on crime in these two missions. And I, I think there is some concern in the Labour Party about whether there are hostages to fortune that they're, that they're laying. I wonder as well, just to conclude, Gavin, you'll have been familiar with this, I'm sure. Politicians are acutely aware of the fact that a lot of voters feel very strongly about this, quite understandably, right? And so they feel they have to say stuff about it and and sound those sort of tough notes. But I just wonder whether it works or whether it just dissolves into white noise as far as most voters are concerned. Look, voters are very sceptical of all politicians saying things. They've learned not, not to believe that those things necessarily happen. So it's tough when you're in opposition. I think Blair managed to achieve this a little bit when he was Shadow Home Secretary. There was a perception that the Labour Party was kind of soft on crime. And by repeating that catchphrase, everything he did for about three or four years, he did kind of shift that perception. Yeah, and it was a bit more profound than that. He had substantial things to say. I mean, they say that the big turning point on that was a speech that he made about the murder of Jamie Bulger in Liverpool, which was very, very powerful, which was somehow about the idea that that, awful, awful episode said something powerful about the condition of the country, which in lesser hands might have sounded quite cheap and didn't, right? Now, again, this this comes back to what we were saying about the, about what's going on in Scotland. I'm not sure we have politicians with the, with the talents, really, to, to do that kind of stuff anymore. Uh, yeah, and I think also uh, it's, it's, it's got harder. Being a politician, I think, has got harder. I mean, if you, if you think about the, the, the 20 or well, more than that, I guess, years since, 25 years since Blair came to power, sort of trust in politicians. Yeah, yeah, But the media has become more sort of broken up. Social media plays a much bigger role. So to make those profound points about the national condition and how issues like crime and punishment play into it requires a level of trust and the sense that people are listening to you. And and if that goes, perhaps all you get is is a politics of flimsiness and opportunism or what looks like it. I also think that if there's an equivalent of that 
of the Jamie Bolton murder now something that's completely almost, you know, that's changed how we feel, not just to, about crime, but about society more generally. It was Sarah Everard's murder, actually. Right, and right. in that sense, you know, the Starmer speech was responding to that. To be honest, law and order crime is, is an issue for Labour that it doesn't want to spend a lot of time on because it knows it's not a strong thing for them. It just kind of wants to neutralise it. But I, I, with Starmer, I think it's going to be a bit more than that. And that's because of his probably personal stake in it. I hope he's listening because uh, without one sound flippant, that may be the first time in recent history we've said that Kistama has done something interesting. So on that note, (laughs) he probably has. He probably has. On that positive note, we will draw things to a close. Thank you much. Thank you very much for joining us, Gabby and Gavin. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, I always say this, make sure you subscribe to Politics with the UK wherever you get your podcasts and please leave us a review. This year, as part of our partnership with the Glastonbury Festival, we have 10 pairs of tickets to give away for free to worthy winners. Simply visit theguardian.com backslash worthy hyphen winners to nominate someone to win a weekend of arts, culture and music and no antisocial behaviour. Absolutely not. You can cast your nominations by Saturday the 1st of April 2023 and it's open to UK residents aged 18 and over. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Cucutier and the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. 